Well, um, one of the unique things about living in Northern California, and in particular um, up in the foothills of the Sierras, is how immersed you are in kind of gold country. Like, there are gold mines up there everywhere. There's one not too far from my house, just a couple stones throw that I accidentally lit on fire when I was in high school, but that's another story. Um, but they're everywhere. Like, you just, you, you, you just gold rush stuff. You just grow up in it. And if you come from Ohio or, you know, Oklahoma, you just don't sense it the way we did. I mean, it made for some fun adventures as a kid, you know, um, unbeknownst to my mom and dad, we, we, uh, who happened to be here. Um, We'd, we'd go splunking in those caves, and if you don't know what splunking is, it's, you know, grabbing a flashlight and, like, going through, crawling through the caves, which terrifies some people, but we loved it. If we found a cave, we went into it. I figured better to ask forgiveness than permission, so I'm sorry, Mom and Dad. Uh, but one of the cool things that we did as a family is that um, they would take us frequently to Coloma. You know, it's, the, it's where James... Marshall discovered gold, and, and it started the whole gold rush. Um, he discovered it in January of, of 1848. Uh, we know it as the 49ers, but it took a little while for the, for the news to get, get around the world. But one of the things that intrigued me and still intrigues me about that whole gold rush thing is how quickly word traveled about gold and the, like the massive frenzy of activity that came out of that simple news. I mean, before texting, before phones, before... Um, you know, Facebooking and all that stuff. It's like somehow word about gold traveled around the globe. And one of the most remarkable stories is how the Chinese people heard this news like all the way around the earth and many of them living in kind of dire circumstances in the mid-1800s uh, heard this news and were willing to leave everything behind, get on rickety wooden ships, sail across the largest ocean on earth to a place they'd never been to try and find gold that they never saw or touched. That, that to me is a remarkable story of, of motivation, faith, and news. I mean, if you think about it, pause. They didn't touch the gold. They hadn't seen the gold. They didn't know where they were going, but simply on the basis of a report, like a verbal word that we found gold in the hills of California. They were willing to give up everything in the belief that the news was true to head into a new world. That is such a living and powerful illustration of faith in response to good news and how powerfully it can affect and motivate your life to move in a different direction. Not unlike the scripture we're told that the good news or the news, the word of Christ, has the potential to radically alter a person's life and send them in the other direction. I mean, we're coming up on, on Easter in which we look back to the most important event of human history, at least from a Christian perspective, where Jesus, who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and then died a sacrificial death to take the sins of you, me, and everyone else who would believe, upon himself so we wouldn't have to pay for our own sins and then came back to life to recreate the human heart and eventually the world as we know it. I mean, that's the, the good news, and it, and it is a powerful word that has revolutionized people's lives because they believed it. And we talk a lot about that in church, and we should. That is God's working in the past. It's Good Friday and Easter morning. That is because without that, there's, there's nothing. And we like to talk about the present benefits of that event. Namely, enjoying the simple fact that we're forgiven. 
Like, to, to be reminded, I, I actually am forgiven, especially after the week that you've had, right? To know that we should rejoice in the Lord because we have no reason not to, or to simply remember that, that God is with us, he's walking through with us, and so forth. Those are the present benefits, and some of those benefits include trying to figure out how is it that the good news of Jesus and his cross make a difference in things like my marriage or my parenting or my vocation? Like, how should Christianity affect how I go to work and am at work? All of those things are really important, both how God has acted in the past with Jesus and his death, resurrection, and also the present benefits of of what we should experience as a result of that. But one of the things we oftentimes minimize is the future. I mean, and what I mean is that he died and rose again, not to just give us present benefits in a fallen, broken world. He died and rose again, yes, to give us benefits in the present tense, but to take us somewhere, like to take us across the ocean of time into a place of radical newness and wonderful glory. And that is the focus of these final chapters of Ezekiel. Now, just to recap, you know, the early chapters, and actually most of the book, is pretty dark. Um, it prophesies the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the burning of the temple, all of which were sacred centers to Jewish worship. Um, it talks about their exile, that the people of Israel were banished from their homeland, all of which was an act of God's judgment because they had broken covenant with him. So this book is mostly about punishment. But we've seen some bright spots. And these last eight chapters, I just want you to picture in your mind, are almost like a, like a plane coming up out of the clouds of judgment into the brilliant sunshine of what the Lord, who still loved his people, still merciful, abounding in steadfast love, was going to do to bring them back. So these eight chapters are full of glory, and that's how this book ends. So with that said, I want to prepare your mind in two ways. I just want you to kind of be ready. Some sermons or messages are, are just kind of sit back and relax messages, kind of like watching an old rerun of Gilligan's Island, right? You just watch it, put your brain on, oh, that's funny, that's Gilligan, and that's the skipper, and there's Ginger, right? This is not one of those sermons. So I just want to ask you to do your best to like focus your mind for 15 minutes, and then I'm going to talk about the present implications of this. If you can track with me, and I, th- I think it's clear, if you can track with me, I think by the time we get done, you're going to go, wow, this is awesome. It's like, and it's not dancing. It's just right here. It's in the scripture. This is prophetic word that is certain and infallible. So just track with me. And the second thing is I just want you to understand I have a singular aim this morning. It's not to give you a how-to lesson, four steps on how to have a better marriage. The singular aim this morning is to fortify your hope, strengthen your hope. We need hope. We live in a broken world. There are people in here who are dying. There are people in here who have had bad news. And how else can we see these problems that feel so monumental in this first world that we live in decompressed so that we can see something bigger, a hope that is fortified as a hope that enables us to live more truly, more faithfully, with greater integrity, with greater courage and strength. So I'm, I'm just trying to fortify your hope this morning, and I hope that you will sense like wind in your heart in the form of hope. So with those two things said, track with me, and I have one aim. Um, let's look at these, these eight chapters, and I'm just going to give you samples. 
okay? No need to be scared, eight chapters. This, these, this final vision has four basic components to it. Focused on a temple, that is, the first temple was destroyed, and so there's a vision of a new temple. The second thing is he sees the uh, reestablishment of priest and sacrifice, that is a reestablishment of worship. Third thing is he sees a river. And then the last thing is he sees inheritance, that is the people of Israel get their land back. So those are kind of the four parts of this vision. Temple, pre-sacrifice, river, and the last one, inheritance or land. So with that said, I just want to briefly look at those four things and show you the text. So the final vision I summed up is the Lord is there. The reason for that is because the four words that close this 48-chapter book, the four most glorious words, and where this book ends is though that, that, that phrase, the Lord is there. All right? So the first part of this vision has to do with the temple, or what I put here is the restoration of God's permanent dwelling place. So here's chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, that is the city of Jerusalem, on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city, again, Jerusalem. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. So he's taken in a vision, and he's taken to a high mountain where he sees a city. And in that city, he sees a temple. Now, I'll encourage you to read through the chapters 40, 41, 42, and 43. There are meticulous, detailed, lengthy descriptions of the various facets of the temple. If you like to geek out on architectural details, then go for it. If you're like me, um, and find that kind of detailed architectural description uh, exercise in patient perseverance, you know, things like vestibules and the measurement of vestibules and rooms and measurement of rooms and gates and jams and, and windows. Um, well, the short of it is, is that he's describing a temple that is somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 times the size of Solomon's original temple. It's huge. But it's good to stop and go, okay, instead of getting lost in the details, losing the forest for the trees, what is it, what is a temple? Like, like what is at the heart of what a temple is? And the heart of what a temple is, is it's, it's a dwelling place. It's, it's the dwelling place for the Lord. And the Jewish mind would have understood that where the temple is or where the tabernacle is, that's where the presence of the Lord is. So first and foremost, it's about God's presence being amongst his people. And if you remember back in your Old Testament history, um, God told Moses while God's glory was up on the Mount, Mount Sinai, way up high, he says, hey, build a tabernacle for me, which is kind of like a, a, like a fabric temple. He says, build a tabernacle for me so that I can come from the high mountain and come down and be amongst my people. I mean, that's first and foremost what a temple is, is God's taking a dwelling place amongst his people and on a secondary level, a place where they can meet and worship with him. But it is, it is something that signifies God's, God's presence. So he sees a temple, the place of God's presence, and then you move forward 
And he sees the glory that earlier in the book departed, like it left God's people. That's a horrible tragedy for God's presence to leave his people, going to the east. Now he sees the reverse. Now he sees the presence of the Lord come back into this temple he sees. Chapter 43, uh, 1 through 5, he says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, so towards the Dead Sea. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Like, this is good news, like God's coming back. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple, that's the temple that he described with all of those details, um, the gate facing east, the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That's, so there's this temple, but the important thing about our temple is that's where God's glory is. All right. Now, something significant happens after this in the next chapter that I just want to point out because I think it's key for interpretation. These instructions are given to Ezekiel. He says, And the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and uh, no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. So track with me, right? Don't go on pause here, or la-la land, or think about your roast. It's going... The glory of God comes back through this east gate, back into the temple, through the eastern door, and he says, shut it. The sense of that is that I'm never going to leave again. I'm never going to depart again. In other words, this is a permanent situation, and that's key. Because the great temple, the next temple that was built by King Herod... Um, was abandoned as well, which means this passage cannot be talking about that temple. So, just to sum it up, the first part of this vision on temple is it's, it's viewing God's dwelling place, a, a restoration of God dwelling amongst his people forever. Permanent. Never going to change. You, you got that first part? All right, that's the first part of the vision. second part has to do with the restoration of priests and sacrifices. I'll only spend a couple of seconds on this. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it was erected for uh, offering burnt offerings upon it and for throwing blood against it. You shall give to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a bull from the herd for a sin offering. So woven through these chapters, he's saying that the Levitical priests are going to come back and they're going to start offering sin offerings again. That's a way of saying, listen, I'm restoring worship. Um, I mean, those sin offerings were to deal with sin and atone for sin so that you could be in right relationship with God. There has to be priest and sacrifice. So he's saying that's coming back. Now, keep that in mind. They're going to offer sin offerings. So there's the presence of God in the temple. That's what it symbolizes. There is this priest sacrifice. In other words, worship's going to be restored. Third, and this is one of my favorite parts in the whole book, the vision of the river. He notices in this temple he has seen, and, and, and actually he's kind of given this virtual tour, he sees like a trickle of water coming out of the temple door underneath the, the, the threshold. A little trickle of water. This is how it goes. Verse 1 of chapter 47, we're almost at the end of the book. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced the east. So God's glory is in the temple. 
his presence, and from his presence, there's this trickle of water. And he goes on to describe, he has kind of this tour guide who takes him about 500 meters to the east. And he measures the water, and he realizes it's, it's ankle deep. So what started as a trickle is now like a brook, ankle deep. His tour guide takes him another 500 meters or so to the east, and he measures again. It's up to his knees. Now we're talking maybe a stream. He takes another 500 meters out to the east, and now he measures it, and it's up to his waist. That's a, that's a decent river. He takes him another 500 meters out, and it's impassable. In other words, what started as a trickle is now this massive river. So what is, what is the significance of this? Well, here's what he sees as a result of the river. I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. If you head east from Jerusalem, you end up in the desert. And he's saying this river that's headed east down into the desert where almost nothing grows unless there's a spring is now becoming this flourishing land. This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah. And Arabah is where the Dead Sea is. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. And enters the sea, talking about the Dead Sea. Again, it's called Dead Sea because nothing lives in it. It's dead. And look what happens. When the water flows into the sea, that is the Dead Sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And on the banks and on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month. Underline that, every month. Because the water for them flows from the sanctuary, that is from the presence of God, from the fountain of life. Their fruit will be food and their leaves for healing. Underlined leaves for healing. What's being described is a river of life. It's like you can almost picture as it goes forward from a trickle down to a mighty river. There's like, there's like fruit trees and life just flourishing everywhere. And what, what, what was once a dead sea is now alive and fresh. And it says, wherever the river goes, giving the sense that it continues to go and go and go, this is, this is recreation. It's, that's what's in view. This river is the river of life that's giving new life to the world. In this case, the view, view is the land, but I'm going to expand on that in a moment. So that's the third thing. So you have this temple, which is the presence of God. They have reestablishment of worship through priest and sacrifice, and you have this river of life that causes the, 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 the land to just flourish. And then you have this, this final piece where he spends, again, lots of time, lots of detail, lots of description, lots of measurements talking about the division of the land. That is its inheritance. And if you are really into real estate or you'd like to be a surveyor someday and you want to go, get into the detail of these measurements and so forth, knock yourself out. The point is, the people get the land back. Home. So you put all four of those things together. Like, so God permanently establishes his presence among his people. Worship is restored. There is life in the land. And the people come back. That is a full-orbed vision of home. So transitioning from this, what are we to make of this? 
How are we to understand this as Christians? And here, I just want to admit up front, I am probably going to be disagreed with by some in here. That's okay. We can still be friends. Are we to, for example, interpret this literally? Like, is there going to be a literal third temple in Jerusalem? And some would say, yes. And some people in first service last, last two hours, they said, yes. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to try and convince you otherwise. All right? Because to take this in a limited, literal way um, poses some problems for Christian understanding of the New Testament. I think, this is my persuasion, that as Jesus told us that all the law and the prophets point to him. In other words, you can't understand any of the Old Testament unless it is related to him and his work, that he has to be the deciding interpretive voice on how to understand Old Testament prophecy and how the apostles have expanded on his teaching. So me, I take a prophecy like this and I, I, I study out, how does the New Testament see fulfillment of this? And that's what I go with rather than just kind of imposing a limited literal interpretation. So having said that, like I said, there, if we interpret this literally, it should bother parts of our belief system if, in terms of our Christianity. Now, just as a caveat, if the Orthodox Jews at some point decide they're going to build a temple, and Lord knows they have like all the furniture for it, and there, there's intentions to do that, I don't think that's ultimately a Christian temple. Here's why. Try and convert you right now. When Jesus came onto the scene, he referred to himself as the temple of God. He said, destroy this temple, referring to himself, and I will rebuild it in three days. That wasn't an accidental statement. Like, Jesus is the essential temple, if you think about it. I mean, he is Emmanuel, God's presence with us. He is the dwelling place of God. The fullness of God dwells in him. So it makes sense that he'd refer to himself as a temple. He is the word made flesh, like God tabernacled in the person of Jesus amongst his people. And they beheld his glory, like the glory they saw in Sinai. So he, like he refers to himself as the temple of God. The real temple has arrived. When he rode into Jerusalem on Sunday morning, Palm Sunday, and he gave his life on Good Friday, after he gave up his spirit, and he's the one who gave up his spirit, they didn't take it from him, um, do you remember what event happened? Something ripped. The veil was torn in two. In one sense, like, the temple in the Old Testament was a gift, a sign of God's presence. But in another way, it was a restriction, or should I say a separation? Like, because a holy, pure God cannot be in the presence of sinful man, there had to be this veil of separation. And so it would remind them over and over and over again, like we're not worthy to be in the presence of God. So while it was a gift, on the other hand, it was a sign of separation. You'd just be reminded, well, I can't go behind the tent. Only the high priest once a year can go, and it's that holy. And when that temple veil ripped, that was a significant event, saying that, you know what? That veil of separation is gone. 
as Paul would say, we now have access through the Son in the Spirit to the Father. We no longer have a veil remaining there. So the question is, so why would we want to go back to a veil in a physical temple? I mean, would you want to know your wife through a veil? You know, they can't see through? No. It's like, that's not progress in my opinion and many others. It's a regression. The progression is actually Christ has destroyed that veil. Therefore, the need for an actual physical temple is now obsolete. And then we're told, because Jesus is the temple, the presence of God, that as people come to believe in him, they actually become living stones. And we just read a portion from Ephesians chapter 2. talks about we are now the dwelling place of God. The hearts of redeemed men and women become the temple and dwelling place of, of the Almighty God. And by the time you get to the end, Revelation 21... There's no temple. The sense is, God has given us the grace not to know him by way of a separating veil, but he has opened the way for us to know him directly and see his face forever. So, which would I choose? Oh, I want to go back to a veil, back to a physical temple, or do I want to understand that Jesus has blown away the need for that temple and we get to be with God firsthand? I'll take door number two. So that's... I think the temple is a, is a symbol. It's a symbol of God's presence that was made possible through Jesus Christ and finds its fine, final fulfillment in the new creation. The second thing, it's like, okay, you've got the priesthood. So Levitical priests are going to come back? If you're going to interpret this literally and if you're going to interpret the temple literally, it seems to me you have to interpret the Levitical priests and the sin sacrifices literally as well to be consistent. But again, isn't that... To go backwards? So we're going to have fallen men from the tribe of Levi offering animal sacrifices on this future physical temple's altars, and they were called sin offerings. There's no way of getting around it. That, again, should cause a bit of a problem for our Christian beliefs that, you know what? We do need a priest. We do need sacrifice. But we have a belief that we have a great high priest who offered once for all in a single act of death and resurrection... The only sacrifice that would forgive us. And it's done. So we don't have to be reminded by sacrificing over and over again to move towards physical temple and physical priests offering physical animal sacrifices. It's not to go forward. It's actually to go backward. And I think the whole book of Hebrews would say, that's apostasy. You can't go back to the old system. And then you look at the rest of these and you realize like Jesus is, the, is both the fulfillment and the author of these. Like He is the recreator of the of the world. He's, he's, he gives to the woman, or he doesn't give. He tells the woman at the well, he says, if you knew who I was, you would ask for me for living water. Like the living river, living water, and it would bubble up in your soul and it would recreate you. Well, that living water, that spirit of the living God is not only remaking the hearts of men and women, someday he will remake all of the world, which is right now subject to frustration. And if the world right now is as beautiful as it is and as wonderful as it is, is still subject to frustration and decay, imagine what it will be like when it's liberated by the Spirit of God. Forests and trees and streams and everything that has breath, praising the Lord. He's the author of new creation. He's, again, he's the only one who is the rightful heir of all things. That is not just the land but the earth. But he is so gracious that he, because he has died for us and made us new, 
he shares his inheritance, and not just of the land of Israel, but more importantly, an entire earth with us as co-heirs. We inherit the earth. And that's a pretty remarkable, you know, I, this sounds like a beating drum, but, you know, our final destination as Christians by way of resurrection, our final des- destination is not heaven. It's the new earth. It's here, remade. That in the final visions of the Bible, it's not us going to heaven. It actually, heaven comes to earth. And we greet our heavenly king, and he establishes this world and recreates it. So this is an amazing set of visions with these four component parts which screams new creation that's coming all made possible because of Christ. And I'm going to finish with this reading and just one comment, but I'm going to read for you from the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. Not the whole thing, just a few verses. And I want you to tell me that he is not dragging Ezekiel into his vision. That is, he is interpreting Ezekiel as new creation. So here's the first couple of verses of chapter 22 of Revelation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. It's coming from the same place. It's called a river that gives life, a river of life, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So as the river coming from the throne or from the presence of God, it has trees growing on both sides and giving fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's Ezekiel 2. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. No veil. We get to see it. Just, sorry, I just woke you up. You get to see it. That's good preacher motivation, manipulation there. Just wake up. You get to see it face to face. And face to face, there's to see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. That is, there will be no more darkness in the... In the moral sense, they will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And the location of their reign, according to chapter 21, is on the earth. Church, this is, this is, this is our hope. And many of us are aging in this room. A lot of us have pain in this room. Disappointments or people who have cancer in this room. And those can seem like huge things, and I don't want to minimize pain. But man, you and I need to have a vision of what's on the other side of the ocean, of time. And to know that, man, what's on the other side? Like, almost like the Chinese heard the reports, and they got on the boats, and they sailed away to a new world. So we have the news. We are on a voyage. We are aboarding a ship. Many of us are already on board, and to others, like God is saying, climb aboard, we're bon voyaging out of here, and we're headed to a city whose name is, the Lord is there. The Lord is there, and that's our treasure. And so I I pray, if you know, if you know that, 
that's where you're going, then I, I, I hope that this has fortified your faith a little bit to raise your eyes up from the pain and move forward in courage and encouragement and strength. And if you, you, you're not certain of that final destination, I just encourage you, man, uh, Jesus is the key to, to it all. And um, just to embrace him as your, as your captain um, and set sail with him. Father, we praise you for your goodness to us. There is no way of measuring or explaining just the vastness of your love and grace towards us that you would do all of this for us, for people who are, are broken. And so we just praise you. We thank you. I pray that you would continue to inspire and fortify hope in our hearts, that we might walk with strength, we might walk in obedience, we might walk in hope. In Jesus' name, amen.